Tribe Talk. Tribe Talk is a podcast created to elevate your life through real talk, true stories, and great debates, with some fun sprinkled in. We dive into all things lifestyle, health, and wellness to expand your knowledge and guide you towards living your happiest, healthiest life. I am Sam. And I am Emily. And we are your hosts. Hey, Tribe. So this week, I am talking to Michael Maisie. Michael is an actor, entrepreneur, public speaker, author of the upcoming book, Young Offender, as well as a husband and proud dad of two girls. This year marks Michael's 11th year of being sober. And in our chat, we talk about his life and how he went from a young, angry man struggling with addiction to the inspiring, motivational man that he is today. I absolutely loved chatting to Michael, and I think that his strength and courage throughout his life, the incredible way that he is open and talks about mental health and addiction, is something that everyone needs to hear, and there needs to be more men like him around and on social media. I know that no matter who you are, where you're from, or what you're going through, you can take something empowering from our chat this week. Don't forget to subscribe to Tribe Talk for the latest episodes. Find us over on Instagram at the.tribe.life and give us those ever-important five stars and reviews. So without further ado, here's Mr. Maisie. Hi, my name's Michael Maisie. I'm an author and actor and done a few other bits and pieces. You might see me on social media, on the telly, whatever. So one thing that I wanted to talk to you about today was about um, your your journey, really, from, you know, 10 years ago to now, because you've had quite a, quite a time of it, you could say. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So you want me to start when I first got sober, or shall I go right from the beginning? Um, well, wherever you feel comfortable, really. I think it'd be quite interesting to know, you know, what your life was like before you got sober. Um, and what yeah, sure. what it was that made you want to change? Yeah, yeah, sure. So it, to give the to give your listeners a bit more context about my story. So I grew up in a house where my mum was from a traveller background. She was an alcoholic. My dad was a drug addict. He left before I was one. Um, growing up, there's physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect. There was all sorts of crazy shit happened growing up. Uh, sorry, am I allowed to swear on this? <laughs> yeah, don't worry. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, so yeah, and I just grew up like an angry young man, really in defence mode all the time. I made a decision really early on in my life that this universe isn't a friendly place. You can't really trust anyone. The people closest to you are normally the ones that hurt you. Um, and so I was in defense mode. I was stuck in defense mode all the time. Didn't want to let anyone in, was, was scared a lot of the time, but put up this wall that, as if I wasn't scared when really I was. And this is all knowledge I've, I have looking back in hindsight, by the way. Um, but yeah, and then sort of got to my early teens, experimented in drink and drugs, tried like heroin and crack when I was 13. And, um, you know, it was just, just, just became a wild kid, really wild, angry, uh, pissed off with the world. And then, um, I watched a film called Menace to Society when I was 14. And I love, have you ever seen that film yourself? 
No, I haven't heard of You've it. You've never seen it? Okay. Menace to Society is an American gangster movie, right? And there's a character in it who, I forgot his name. Um, I forgot his name. But anyway, you'll know him. He has dreadlocks. And he's a young kid and he has a gun and he walks about and he's just, he's just like a king of his neighbourhood with, with this gun. And I start watching this film age 14 and just become obsessed with having a gun. So anyway, I get my hands on an imitation firearm and um, I'm going around, waving it around, getting into fights, all sorts of stuff, start holding up shops. And then I get convicted at the age of 15 for uh, armed robbery and possession of firearms. Is that It was actually dropped. It was attempted robbery and possession of firearms. Um, but back then it was a big deal. There wasn't many armed robbers back then who were 15 years old. Um, and so... Shortly after that, I, I got arrested for something else, went to prison, spent a lot of time in all my teenage years in prison. And I was in and out of children's homes, bail hostels, social workers, probation officers. And my experience back then, there was one or two who were great, but most of them, it was just like a ticking box exercise. No one really took the chance to go like, why, why are you so fucking angry? What the fuck has happened? And... Um, and so anyway, I, I was in prison. I was 18. It was my last time in there. And my mum visited me and she got sober. So I'd always had my mum. had always been an alcoholic all my life. And um, it took me a while to believe her, to be honest with you, because like I'd heard her say loads of times to me, you know, I'm getting sober, son. I'm not going to drink no more. Um, so it took a while. She'd come and visited me three or four more times. And I could see that there was something different about her. And so that was it. That was like the start of my journey, really. I came out of prison, went to my first AA meeting when I was 18. Um, was convinced I wasn't an alcoholic because in my mind, an alcoholic is someone who sleeps on a park bench, who drinks every day. I never drank every day. I never slept on a park bench. And I think the closest age to me in that meeting was 32. So I was 18. The, the nearest age guy to me 32 and it was just like uh you know i don't belong here uh, you know i'm not an alcoholic i'm just a binge drinker and um so yeah i spent from the age of 18 to 25 um trying to figure out trying to like trying to drink normally like thinking okay if i don't drink spirits maybe i'll just drink beer and if i don't knock around with this guy and as long as if i go out and i don't take cocaine and as long as i don't take this drug or what you know and it was like trying to control it in a way. And then at the age of 25, I just accepted that, like, I just can't drink like the normal person. And um, and so that was it. You know, I got sober at the age of 25, which was really fucking hard because there was just no 25-year-olds getting sober. And the thought of, like, getting sober at the age of 25 was just not appealing at all. It was like, what am I going to do on a Friday night? What am I going to do on a Saturday night? Um, you know, but I did it. I did it. I got sober. I relapsed a lot in the first six months and then eventually got sober and I've been sober ever since. It's been uh, 11 years now. Did you go to a rehab centre to get sober or did was it mostly kind of led by you? Yeah, no, I didn't go to rehab. I did detox from heroin addiction in prison. Mm -hmm. um, but that that wasn't like the thing that got me sober. It was like just myself that got me sober in the end. And that's really, that's, that takes a lot, like a, a lot. Like um, I was in the Priory um, when I was younger 
Um, and I was in because of my eating disorder, but there were alcoholics, um, people that were addicted to cocaine. Um, and it really opened my eyes to the fact that I think quite a lot of people haven't have an opinion of what an alcoholic looks like. They, you know, maybe aren't very nice people or, you know, they, they might get aggressive. And actually it made me realize that these were just normal people, but that had the unfortunate position of not being able to control their relationship with alcohol or drugs. The fact that you were able to go on your own essentially and do that and take that path is like an ama- amazing thing really great great and you as well so what priory were you in the one in Roehampton no I was in Bristol oh, okay cool oh, yeah nice so nice. I um yeah I wasn't in there for too long um because it was very expensive and they only have beds for a certain amount of people um but it was definitely an experience being in a hospital and being surrounded by all the people that you think that you'd never never be associated with um but yeah I mean it's not one that I would want to replicate but (laughs) yeah well well done well done for you know doing what you're doing and making it out the other side you know so that's warrior spirit right there thank you so I guess one thing that I'm interested to know is how you went from that stage where you were, you know, recovered and and what made you do what you're doing now, how mm. how it went from A to B. Yeah, yeah. So it was the first, I'd say the first three or four years of my sobriety was really about getting to know me as well as possible like really really like what makes me tick what are my defects what's holding me back um and it was like dealing with the stuff that was most damaging first like what is the stuff that I'm gonna go and drink on and then it was like what's the little sneaky things that sort of hold me back discreetly like low self-esteem the negative image I have of myself in my mind and so it was like Changing my world started with changing me, but really, really looking inwards, like to the point where it's like you've got a microscope on every little tiny thing on everything. And um, and it was only then when I'd done that, I was able to really have enough self-belief that I can actually go and do anything. I can achieve anything. Um, and I also had, I met some really great people and really good mentors, which I think you need. I think if you're trying to do this, you need a mentor. You need someone who's, who's, been down the road that you've been down um so i encourage anyone to seek that person out don't just seek anyone out because there's a lot of bloody it makes me angry that there's so many life coaches out there giving all this advice they've never been through addiction or alcoholism they're giving relationship advice they're not even in a relationship they're giving business advice they ain't even business owners it's just like think about it this way if you wanted to learn how to be a world-class footballer you'd hang out with someone like david beckham so just find someone who's had a life like yours and who's got something that you want. Um, don't just listen to what people say. People can say a lot of stuff. But um, sorry, I went on a rant there. I feel no, I get it. About that. I get that. Completely. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was finding their mentors, men who had been to prison like me, who were like now 18 years sober and had a, had a wife, kids and a business. So I was like, okay, 
I want to be a successful business owner. I want to be a loyal husband. I want to be a good father. So I need to find someone who's all of them, but who's also had a life like mine, who's been to prison. So he knows like really what it really takes. And they were just able to point me in the right direction on, um, on what I needed to look at. And the big thing for me was like a poverty mentality. So like my mum like lived in a caravan most of her life. She, she was used to scraping by. We grew up on, in a council flat on a council estate. Everyone was broke. And it was like when I started becoming successful, I had a thing where I would just spend all my money. And it was because I was so used to having no money having money felt really uncomfortable to me. It was like, I just would have to go and spend it all. And um, I was really lucky. I had people around me who who pointed that out to me. It's a a poverty mentality. You get used to a certain level of anxiety around money and you recreate it. Even when you've got loads of money, you recreate the same level of anxiety by spending it all. So it's little things like that that have nothing to do with, you know, getting sober, that are all about the mechanics of the human mind. So, um, that, that was a big part in it. And, um, and, and self-esteem, that was another thing. You know, I was pretty good from getting to point A to point B. I'm quite methodical. I'm like, okay, this is how we're going to get there, blah, blah, blah. But when I would get there, when I would arrive, I would feel like the novelty would wear off immediately. And I'm automatically looking at the next goal to achieve. And also I would feel like I didn't deserve it for some reason I'd feel like I'd sort of scammed my way there. Like I took a back route or a, so, and that was another thing that I really had to work on as well is, is believing that I deserve the things I have. Um, and that really comes from a place for me growing up and having the life I had, it was almost, it's very rare for someone like me to be where I'm at today. And, uh, and with that, comes a little bit of guilt like I've left a lot of people behind or I should go back and save them and pull them up and I had to really process that emotionally because I can't save everyone and most people don't want to be saved as well so (laughs) it's stuff like that you know like I wish it was just a little magic recipe I could give you in two minutes but it's really in a nutshell it's looking at yourself looking at the darkest parts of yourself that no one wants to look at Mm, you've got to start to know who you are behind or without the drug the drink or the you know the unhealthy habit don't you you have to learn how to cope with things in a way that isn't self-destructive yeah a hundred percent I mean you know like I was running from all the gold so when I mean gold I mean like the stuff that I would run from my feelings for instance if I had a good week at work I'd go to the pub and celebrate if I had a shit week at work and I got the sack, I'd go to the pub and I'd drown my sorrows. So like, I never felt anything. I never learned how to feel any of my emotions. And that's what I needed to feel. My emotions were like the, you imagine like the steering wheel trying to drive you in a certain direction. That's what my emotions were. They were trying to sort of say, you know, so if I was feeling bad, that was a way of driving me towards a place where I would learn something from it so I wouldn't be in that situation again. But because I numbed it out, like I never, there was no growth. There was zero growth for me. So, and that worked the same way when I was, when I was um, successful, when I had great wins and I'd go to the pub and just drink on it. And, you know, I really never um, learned the true 
gold in that? Like, what was it exactly that I'd done that led me to be successful? And how do I replicate that in other areas of my life? Instead, I just felt the joy and went and drunk. Mm. So I was just going around in a circle, you know, in my own crap, basically. So for me, it's like in the most painful situations, them emotions that you don't want to feel, there's always a bit of gold in there if we're willing to get it out and just look at it and explore it a little bit. Yeah, it's like that quote. Um, it's something like, you've got to feel it to heal it. Mm, yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. So what, what is your business? I do, I do lots of things. I set up years ago when I first got sober, I worked in a sales position. And um, I was really good at sales because I just applied everything that I learned in the 12-step program is like honesty, integrity. So I would just treat everyone the same. I didn't care like if you were the biggest contractor or the smallest contractor, treated you all the same, was honest with you if I felt that it was a shit deal. And um, and I was working for this company. The company, the recession came and like it was just like the company were letting people go. And I had a friend who worked as an estate agent and he was like, you'd be a good estate agent. And I remember at the time thinking, I can't be an estate agent. You need, don't, you need to go to university or something to be an estate agent. You know, like I, I didn't even get any GCSEs. I went to prison when I was 16. So in my head, I thought if you went to work wearing a suit, you had to have some qualification or something. And, um, and he was like, no, no, you know, you can, well, I reckon you can do it. So I went and I, and I was an estate agent for about 18 months. And although I was very good, I fucking hated it. I hated, I hated that it was so cutthroat. I hated the dishonesty. And in the end, I, I, I left. I was like, I, I just can't do it. I can't live this program. I had to live an honest program through the 12-step program. It's an honest program. You have to be honest. I was like, I can't do my, this job, what you're, my managers are asking me to do, and do this program. And I was like, I care about being sober more than I care about this job. So I left and I, I, I was like, what am I going to do with my life? Um, and someone suggested to me, well, why don't you set up your own estate agents and just do it, do it the way that you think it can be done uh, with honesty and integrity. And um, I had a lot of people laugh at me when I said I was going to do it. And, um, and I've done it anyway. I set up my own estate agent. So that's one thing that I've got. No, I don't, I'm not actively involved in anymore, but I set up an estate agent in the place where I committed all my crime and everything as a kid. And, um, we went on, I think, six years running. Every year we've been open, we've won the award for best estate agent in the area. And we're not like a multi-million pound company, but we're a small family-run business that is like honest with people. We don't bullshit people. So if your house is worth 500, I'm going to tell you it's worth 500. I'm not going to tell you it's worth 1,600 just to get you to sign on the dotted line. Mm. And so when you're honest in that game, you unfortunately, you don't earn lots of money because people chase the pound note, right? But you end up with people who are serious about selling. So three years ago, I took a step back from that. I made two guys who worked for me, shareholders in the company. And I was like, I'm going to, I want to go back to doing stuff that I loved as a kid and stuff that I feel passionately about. So when I was younger, I was in a TV show called birds of a feather, um, loved acting. It helped me escape my, um, my reality at home. And, um, and I always made a vow I'd go back to it. You know, Pauline Quirk said to me once, she was one of the lead actresses in Birds of Feather, she was like, you could be really good. And But back then you needed a chaperone. 
if you were a child actor. So you needed a parent to escort you to all the auditions and stuff. Obviously, mm. my mum was a drinker, so I didn't have that. And um, I missed out. And it was always one of them things I thought I'd love to go back and do. So I've gone back and I do bits of acting here and there, which I enjoy, which is more like of a hobby for me. You know, I only do stuff that I feel passionately about. I wouldn't just do any crap. I wouldn't do commercials. No judgment on anyone who does commercials either. But for me, I just want to put content out that I feel is going to benefit the world. Um, and then I started writing the book as well. So I've got a book coming out in July about my life being published by Pam McMillan. It's called Young Offender. And I've just almost finished developing an online program for people. So it's an online program. If you've been to, if you have, a, if you've had drink and drug problems or food problems or sex addiction or whatever it is, and you want to get rid of it, you don't want to go to AA or one of them fellowships. You don't really need to go to rehab. And it's like, what do you do? okay, I've developed this online program for you. You're like the candidates for it. It's free of charge, so anyone can do it. Unlike most things that are free, it's not a load of crap. Um, it's everything I've used over 11 years that got me to where I am, so I'm just giving it away for free. And so um, I do that. I've got two kids. I've got two dogs. I've got a wife. I've got a house. I've got 10 acres of land. I've got, you know, my life is full. So when you say, what, what do I do? What's my business? God, I do lots of stuff. Do stuff like this as well. Help people. And uh, public speaking as well. I do public speaking. I'm doing a talk for Turning Point next Wednesday at the Birmingham Conference Centre. Uh, do school talks, prison talks. Yeah. So busy life. That sounds amazing, though. I, I'm kind, I kind of see a lot of similarities Um between us because I trained as an actress as well um and I mean I wasn't in Birds of a Feather like that's friggin amazing (laughs) um I'm definitely gonna have to go back and like see if I can see who you are in that I've just got the scene in my head now yeah well no and I was just saying like what you said about you part of the reason why acting was such a big deal and a love for you because you were you could be someone else and I yeah. think that is, I think there's, there's often a lot of um, addictive behavior in kind of the, the acting world, you know, the performing world, because mm. there is, it, I think it, I kind of think part, partly it can attract those people that want to be someone else or feel differently to the way they, they, they do. And I think yeah. quite often it can be really easy to hide in, hide away from who you are um Mm. and knowing knowing that and being able to still go back to it but then change it up into the way that you you enjoy it again and and, you know doing things that you're passionate about I think is really important because Mm. then you're not it's not necessarily the escapism it once was yeah of course of course and um you know I encourage you to go back to it because part of my thing when I got sober, one of the things I had to figure out what makes me happy. And I feel happy when I feel a sense of fulfillment. And for you, especially you trained as an actress, I imagine if you went back and you got started getting some acting gigs, you'd feel a sense of fulfillment. Mm. It's funny. That scares me though. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what it's meant to do because we don't learn anything from our in our comfort zone. You know, we need to be like challenging our fears. So, that, and that's where the gold is. 
on the other side of you being scared is going and getting a lead role in something and looking back afterwards and being full of joy. Mm, yeah, it's interesting because it's, see, I feel like when I decided not, so I, I went, I got into Mount View. Do you know Mount View in London? The, oh, I've heard of it, yeah. 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 So I did I did two years in foundation degree in Gloucestershire, Gloucester Uni um, yeah. and then got into Mount View, went to Mount View and it was at Mount View that I had to leave because I'd been through one round of um, treatment and mm-hmm. I, although I wasn't, um, I, was, I was bulimic, so although I wasn't still acting on those urges and things like that, I, my body was so tired. So I'd just fall asleep mid-conversation and I was just broken. And when I had to leave and go into, you know, that ended up going all going wrong again, as it does sometimes. Um, and um, it was when I was in treatment and coming out of the Priory that I found um, Pilates. So I'm a Pilates teacher. And I felt like I had, I was at a crossroads and I could either take one road and go down a bit more of a stable route, which I think I needed at the time. I needed that stability. I think acting would have been far too, um, up and down. Um, and so I kind of, I did my, I finished my degree, um, but I left the acting behind and it, and even the other day someone said, do you think you'll ever go back? And I was a bit like, oh, I don't know. Cause to me, when I wanted to be an actress, I was very much, I'm going to be on my own, living in London, like, you know, had this world planned out. And now I'm a wife, I'm a stepmom, I have a business and I'm a bit like, well, that's somebody else's life now. Um, yeah. But maybe that's fear talking. It could, it could be. And I think the important thing is, is to try you know, I had I had the same thing when I went back to acting. It was about three years ago. I went back and I'd done a course with the actor's studio. And I was like, this could just be one thing. I go back and I'm in it half an hour and I'm like, oh, screw this. It's not, I'm not up for it. And my experience was completely different. I went back and I felt all these feelings, anxiety. I'm not good enough, blah, blah, blah. I compare myself to everyone else. And um, on the first exercise, one of the directors come up to me and was like, I'd have really liked you. That was really good. And it was like, oh, wow, shit. You know, it was like, what I realized was that, yeah, it's like, oh, I think I was about eight years sober then. Eight years down the line, I still have this low self-esteem. Mm. So the, my perception of how I'm doing and, and how, how I'm coming across is all, I'll always go to negative. And it's like, I'm eight years sober. You'd, in my head, I guess I thought I would have got over that a bit. And being in that environment proved that I hadn't. And so in that was a bit of gold. I learned, you know, sometimes my perception is normally worst case scenario. Mm. And um, But anyway, off the bat, I completed that course. We'd done a, a, a performance at the end. And then I landed a, a role in a, in a film, you know, a feature film, So, which, which is filming in uh, September. So if I never took that leap of faith and I never went back, it, I never would have then, you know, one of the directors on 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 set one day we were filming and he saw me play this character and he was like you'd be great as this character i've got this film and you know it's like two years i think three years later the film's finally come together and we're filming in september but it's just it's like one of them examples of like god thank god i didn't listen to my head 
thank God I just took that leap because life could have been so different. Yeah, definitely. I think things come to us when we either need to learn from it or it's, you know, it's, it's part of the, part of the process of like either healing further or getting to know yourself more. Mm, mm. And I think, especially with you in the journey you've been through, that adds a lot of depth to a character. So the most interesting characters I meet, I've got a lot of friends who are actors. I won't name drop anyone. So a couple of them are really famous, but they get so many good roles because of the depth of their characters. And you only get depth when you've had life experience. Mm. So um, I'd really love to see you on screen and I'm rooting for you. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there's a remake of Annie, I think I'm there good you go. on that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, get the colours out. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. So, um, how, wh- when did you meet your wife? How old are your daughters? So, I've got two daughters, aged seven and five. And I was, crikey, I was about four years sober. Um, was sort of on the road to setting up my own business. Um, had had two failed relationships prior to that because I just didn't know how to do intimacy I didn't know how to do relationships really Mm. but if you narrow it down it's intimacy like I would meet someone I'd really like them they'd get close to me then they'd get a little bit closer a little and then as soon as they get really close I'm like fuck this I want to go yeah I just want to fucking bail because the first thing is like I have evidence that I was sexually abused by my uncle a family member when I was about three years old three or four And so what I took from that as a kid is that you can't trust the people closest to you and the ones that hurt you the most are normally the ones who are meant to love you. Mm. And so I only know this looking back in hindsight, right? So whenever a girl would get close to me, all of that stuff come up. I didn't know why it was coming up. I just knew when you get close to me, I want to run. Um, And the other thing I feel if I let you too close to me, you're going to see my soul and you're going to see how fucked up and twisted I am. And you're probably going to reject me anyway. So I'm just going to reject you. At least I have some control over the whole bloody thing. Um, And so, yeah, it took like two failed relationships. And then I met Sasha. And she was great. I mean, she was just able to sit with me long enough in that space. Because like even now, I'm not an easy guy to be in a relationship. I'm a complex fucking guy, right? And she just sat with me long enough to figure out okay hold on a minute like what is going on here I know you love me I know I love you what is what is going on and it forced me to to go away and and look at it and how my perception of what intimacy is was all messed up I thought intimacy was sex you know and I thought sex was love so I thought if we're not having sex you don't love me you don't fancy me um and it was I just had it all mixed up in my mind of what a, what intimacy is, what a healthy relationship is. I thought a relationship had to be passionate sex every day and love and laughing every moment together. And it's just none of that. My experience is that it, relationship is like patience, tolerance, um, not giving up, you know, supporting them, even if you don't believe in their dreams, it's still supporting them. Um, intimacy is like sitting down with TV off, phone off, looking eye to eye and having a conversation. Um, and it's just like, I, I never saw any of that growing up. So then 
I can't even be angry with myself for not knowing what it is. It's just I had to go away and learn it all. I was just lucky I met someone who was willing to stand by me long enough while I went through this process of learning how to be a dad, how to be a partner. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's quite a common thing. I mean, in terms of pushing people away because it's almost like you feel like you don't deserve to be loved or you know they maybe maybe they don't really understand because I think we as uh as people in general people are very self-deprecating and they are the first to point out all their faults before somebody else can um and it's when it goes to to the point where you're you're pushing people you're you're almost you almost try and play out the worst version of you in order to push them away, if that makes mm. sense. Mm. Um, so being able to get through that is hard, but it's also really rewarding as well. Mm. Um, how how soon did you... So when you first met Sasha and started dating, yep. how soon did you have the conversation of, you know, I'm, I'm sober? And what was that an easy conversation? Were you quite acceptant? of that yeah yeah no like for me in all honesty it was like something that I told women who I met straight away you know and in my head I had this thing where they would be all like oh oh my gosh you're sober and be all freaked out about it in fact my experience was the complete opposite like most of the women were like oh really it was like a breath of fresh air because they'd always dated guys who live for a Friday and Saturday night and they met this guy now who's like, you know, looks after himself, doesn't spend all his money, you know, like he's setting up a business, you know, isn't out every weekend and, you know, isn't off on mad lads holidays. And so it was something that actually, in my experience, women found quite interesting. Mm. Um, so I told Sasha like straight away, I was like, look, I'm, I'm sober. Um, I don't go out, I don't drink, I don't, you know, and, and she was... Um, she had the same experience. She was quite like quite interested. Like, why don't you drink? And then I told her my life, and then she got a bit freaked out. <laughs> but then she was intrigued again, and then she was like, "There's something different about you." She's like, "You have this mad life, but you, there's something like I've never met anyone like you." So, yeah. And does she does she drink or does she yeah. is she sober too? No, no. Sasha drinks. Sasha drinks. Yeah, yeah. Sasha's she's never like used drugs in her life. Mm. But she does drink, but she can just like, we go out for a meal, she can order a glass of wine and that glass, she can have like drink half of the glass of wine and just leave the rest and leave the mm. restaurant. And for me, it just baffles me how people are able to do that. I look and I'm just like, wow, I just, I would have to finish that glass of wine, you know? Um, so she's just like a normal drinker. Yeah. Know? Yeah. It's, um, I think I, it's always interesting because, uh, you know, in relationships and stuff, I think quite often people uh, see a relationship and, and assume certain things. So it's quite interesting to see like a little bit into into yours, I guess, in terms of that. So do you, did you find like being a father changed you to, because obviously you've never drunk when they've been around. Um, yeah. So, but do you, did you find that, that that kind of just cemented your sobriety, having your girls? Um, 
in all honesty, no, I didn't even think about it really. Like I think when I got to about three or four years, it was just like I don't drink anymore. Mm. I just don't drink. I don't drink. I don't use drugs. It was never. I never actually thought of it like that. But it did have a lot of changes on me when the children came. Like when uh, when Connie came, she's my oldest. She's seven. I always had this little fantasy in my mind that one day I'm going to go travel in America or travel in Australia or do something. I'm just going to run away. And when when she came, it was like, okay, I can't do that anymore. And I really need to knuckle down and I need to get my, get if I'm going to be successful, if I want to, in my mind, I was like, if I want to own my own home one day, and I, bearing in mind, I lived in London, I was like, okay, I need to earn a lot of money quick because I got, I got to catch up, you know, got to catch up with all these guys who literally left school, done an apprenticeship and they've been earning money all like seven, eight years longer than me. And so at the time it felt like a big burden of like, oh, now I can't go and do all this stuff I wanted to do, but actually it forced me into action and I got things done a lot quicker. So it actually, that was one of the byproducts of it. And the whole process of being a dad was terrifying for me, you know, and I had to, I'd done lots of work on being a dad. I saw our specific therapists who uh, work directly in the field of parenting because I just didn't know how to be a parent. Like my mum was a drunk and my dad wasn't around. He left before I was one. And mm. it was like the blueprint I got from my dad was that when things get hard, you just leave and go and get another woman pregnant. Um, you know, I got 13 brothers and sisters from my dad. Uh, 13 13 yeah wow yeah yeah yeah. and so that was a hard thing was okay how do I how do I be a dad how do you because growing up there was violence in my childhood and it was like how do you discipline a child without being violent Mm. you know what I mean because I I was never shown that I don't know what it is and I felt great shame admitting that going to a therapist and saying my daughter's, you know, two and she's going through these tantrums and the only solution my head comes up with is to be violent. And it's like, how do I, what should I do? And I remember the therapist said to me, the fact that you're being honest about it and the fact that you're sitting in front of a parenting therapist shows how much of a good parent you are given the life you've had, you know, that you're not just resorting to old behaviors. You're, you're trying something different. And, um, it was so hard. It was so hard. Like, you know, for me, learning all these parenting techniques because it was it was learning it and then thinking, oh, my God, I wish I had this as a kid. You know, I wish someone put their arm around me and, and just gave me some compassion and love instead of a smack around the back of the head. Mm. And so although it was great learning these tools, it was also sad reflecting on my old, own childhood and what I didn't get as well. Yeah. So, yeah. But the girls have been a blessing. I've got two daughters and I typically am quite a go-getter masculine type of guy. And I've got two daughters who've just made me a big softie, <laughs> <laughs> which is what I needed, I think. <laughs> See, I think, yeah, I, I, I think it changes. It does change you a lot. I mean, I don't have any children, um, but my husband obviously does. And um, seeing how your life kind of it it changes and 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 you have to learn so much so in such a short amount of time um but it's mm. it's it is really rewarding as well so 
one thing I did want to talk about as well, which I can't not yeah. mention, is um, yeah. SAS Who Dares Wins. Yeah, not, sure. Yeah. yeah well, let's talk about it. I mean, okay, so I often watch programs like, so for mm-hmm. example, The Island by Bear Grylls. I'm a, yeah. I, I'm, I look at it and I, I've applied for it many a time because I'm determined I want to go on it. And Alan's like, you wouldn't last a minute, blah, blah, blah. But that program, watching that, I could never, I don't think I could even fathom putting myself through that kind of an experience. But yeah. it just, I mean, hand, hands down, like, that's amazing. So yeah. but how, how did that come about? What, what made you kind of apply and go for it? Yeah, so it was really random. So I had a mate of mine who's also an actor. He applied for it last year. He got on, not last year, but the show before, the show that was on last year. He applied, he got on, and then he pulled out right at the last minute. And uh, so he, I'd sort of spoke to him because I was mentoring him at the time, and I spoke to him about the process and all of that. So I had a bit of an idea of what goes on. And then I had got another mate who's who's quite a high-profile actor and his security guard is ex-SAS. And uh, and he said to me, he said, you should apply for that. He's like, you know, you could do, you'd do well because he knows I do all these fitness events and stuff. So I was like, yeah, fuck it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply. So I put in the application, um, literally got a message back really quickly. Yeah, come in. These are the dates we got available. So I went in, auditioned done the physical test, had the interview. And then, yeah, it was like, got the call. I had the interview on a Sunday, got the call on the Monday. Not to say I'm in, it was like, I want to know more about your past. You have got to have a psychiatric test of all these other tests you got to go through. Um, And that was it, yeah. So passed all them tests and then sort of went out there in September last year. And, um, And yeah, that was it. Yeah, it was it was a brutal experience. Yeah, what else what, do you want to know about it? Ask me anything. I don't know. I just find it fascinating. I think, I think it's because uh, I find people like Ant Middleton really inspiring as well. Like his book um, is the first book Alan has read in like years, um, and I re- I find it really interesting the way that especially with men, because I think there's a big stigma around men. Um, You know, men having to be this kind of big masculine, this force and quite shut off. And the fact that some of the toughest people that I've I've ever known of are able to share, a bit like you really, share about their mental health experience, share about um, their life experience in, in a way that is not only really kind of confronting but inspiring at the same time and I just yeah I think I think there needs to be a lot more of it because I don't think that we have enough of that especially with men and boys you you know I don't think there's enough yeah well I think you know I'm, I'm a big advocate of this because I think there's one thing saying you know having someone like a ghostwriter, write a book talking about your mental health. That's one thing. But actually, what does it practically look like for a man to be vulnerable? You know, you can throw around these statements, I support mental health, it's okay to not be okay. And it's like, yeah, well, what does it actually fucking look like? It's not okay to be okay. 
can you just show me a man being vulnerable? Mm. And I think that's where, you know, we're going wrong, in my opinion. You know, like, we need more men to just be honest about, you know, like, their life and um, their experience. And I know for me, like, you might look at my social media and you might think this guy's got it all together. But honestly, some days I wake up and it takes everything in me to not, you know, be full of anxiety. And I think if I went to the doctor some days and told him how I really feel, he'd probably say you're depressed and give me, give me antidepressants. So I think if, if, if I can bring one thing to this is, a, is, a, is my vulnerability that, you know, I might look like I've got my life together, but honestly I haven't. And some days it takes everything in me to not, to not go back to that mental way of thinking. And I've just developed ways to help me stay happy. And, you know, I encourage everyone else to do the same because that's all it's about is like figure out what makes you happy and try and do that every day. You know, and for me, it's exercise, meditation, eating well, gratitude lists, and uh, Wim Hof breathing. I've been really into that for the past couple of years. Um, and I just do it every day. And if I don't do it, at least one of them every day, then I haven't got really any right to, to think I should be happy because happiness just isn't given out for free. It's a byproduct of doing things that make you feel happy. Um, and so that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see more vulnerability and I think on um SAS Vudes wins I think Nathaniel number 16 did you watch the show by the way yes yeah okay great so I think Nathaniel number 16 done a good job of that and I think that's all it needs is just more vulnerability men being vulnerable and showing other men what that looks like you know what does it look like to be vulnerable you know um Another thing that comes up for me, and I'll share this with you here, because I think this is an important thing that a lot of men might be able to relate to, is when I first met my wife, I used to go to the gym like five, six times a week because I was single. I had all this time. I was in really good shape. I had like six pack. You fast forward like, you know, six, seven years, you get a business, two kids, and you don't feel as attractive anymore and you don't feel as strong. And how that manifested into my relationship was in the arena of sex like I didn't feel as attractive to her I didn't feel as confident and because I'm not doing that I feel like less of a man because I feel like I should be this sort of strong dominant sexual male in the bedroom which I don't feel like I can be and it I had to be really careful because it led me down the road of wanting to seek validation from other females to fill that hole in my soul of not being good enough and so, like, that's a good example of vulnerability, like just exposing that part of yourself that you don't want people to see because you're worried they'll judge you as being weak, you know? I, I see, when I see that, I view it as strength, as men being willing to expose themselves, risking being judged and doing it anyway to help inspire other men. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think, like, part of the reason why... I quite enjoy the SAS Who Dares wins is because it's it's usually when they like pop the bag over your head and like take you in for questioning, but they get into you. They don't just allow you just to show them what you want to show, if that makes sense. They, they get into those feelings. They get into like the psyche of the person in front of them. 
And I think even though, you know, it is a, technically, you know, it's a TV show, et cetera, but there isn't enough of that in in the social media world, in on TV, because there's always these stereotypes that come with it and they're often clouded. So being able to see kind of that raw honesty, even if it's just for, you know, a couple of minutes is is quite a refreshing thing. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm working on a TV show at the minute, which is actually a, with Minnow Films as well. Um, we've sent it to them, the proposal to them, where instead of having to go put people through a brutal experience, you're able to, you know, do it, do what they do there, but in a more loving and gentle way with people who actually need it. And that's what I think the world needs more of, in my opinion. I, I mean, I love the show. I've always been a fan of the show. It's a great show. But if we're trying to stop men from killing themselves and male suicide rates at the highest rate ever, I don't think we can get them all into SAS selection. And the ones that go into it will probably feel more suicidal doing that. So what can we do? You know, like, and that's what I've been trying to do. I've built this online program for men and I'm also trying to put together this TV show as well. So fingers crossed that comes off and um, that'll be good TV. I think you'll really like it. Yeah, it sounds like I would. I'll be like, Alan, yeah. watch this, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think if I had any other questions. Anything mm. about SAS Who Dares Wins? Are you sure? Because it, it seems like you're a big fan of that show. Are you sure I... there's nothing else you want to ask me? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan. I, I wouldn't say that yeah. I was like a crazy fan. Um... Okay. <laughs> Who's your favourite out of the DS? Of, oh, the, oh, right, probably Ant. Ant, okay, cool. Yeah. I don't I don't know why I just find him quite interesting but do you know who I what I really enjoyed actually with the whole women coming on yeah was see I'm I'm one of those people who I wouldn't really consider myself a feminist and I know lots of people are probably going to be like oh my goodness you should, everyone should be a feminist but I don't really I don't really put myself in boxes of what I think um I have an opinion on things and you know, I'm I'm not one of those people that is like, my opinion is the only opinion. Um, yeah. And I don't force my opinion on other people. But what I found was that it was really interesting to see men and women pitted against each other, essentially, without any um, allowances being made for the women. Because I yeah. think, personally, if you're going to put women into a battle situation, they need to be just as good as the men. Um, and I think that quite a lot of the time in society now, there is a, in terms of like equality, I think that sometimes it goes too far and it's almost, it goes too far towards women. And it's, I just think sometimes I think, God, give the guys a break, you know, there's, I mean, you know, we can vote, we can, we can get a job, we can be married and still have a job, we can choose to have children, we, you know, and there is definitely parts of society that need to be fixed, but I think that it needs to be done in a way that isn't, it, it doesn't tip the scales the other way, if that makes sense. Mm, and yeah. I enjoyed watching that because I think some of the women on there were an incredible Oh, yeah, they were. Yeah, they, they were strong, super strong. And, um, you know, some of the backstories as well, you know, which they didn't show, which it was such a shame. You know, like um, 
was a girl called Esme on there who was like the lightest and the smallest of every recruit. Um, and she was paralyzed when she was a kid. She didn't even walk. And she was carrying the same weight as us in, in our Bergens. Um, she had to do everything the same as us. And, um, you know, she didn't even get any airtime. I was gutted about it. They didn't show her backstory. But she is like, if, you, if you're anyone's on social media, you should follow her, uh, Esme Gummer. Her social media is Esme underscore London, I think. Um, she's now a, fit, a fitness trainer. But, yeah, that, she was a fine example of, like, pure female strength. It was just great. I mean, for me, I've got two daughters, so I want to see more strong women in the world, you know? Yeah. So, because it paves the way for them. Definitely, 100%. Yeah. Why don't you apply for the show next year? <laughs> There's no way I'd do SAS Who Dares Wins. <laughs> really? Well, if you're a Pilates teacher, you know, you can't be that unfit. No, I wouldn't say I'm un, I'm unfit, but I'm not. Though I'm not like super strong. Yeah, so I love your story though. Yeah, but I don't like running. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. Me and Alan used to try and go running, yeah. and um, I don't know how he still married me. To be honest, after we went running, <laughs> because like I, you know, you 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 were talking about temp, temper tantrums on your social media the other day, and I yeah. honestly had a temper tantrum when I was trying to run because I was so annoyed that I was getting so out of breath and like my legs weren't going as fast as I wanted, <laughs> and I just I just had a proper like hissy fit. And Alan was just like, "I don't want to run with you anymore," and I was like, "No, I don't want to run either." <laughs> <laughs> so you don't run at all now? No. Okay, cool. Yeah. No, I don't run. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, it would make great TV, though, watching you running, having temper tantrums, though. I would really <laughs> love that, seeing, seeing Adam Middleton giving you a real bollocking for it. I think, though, I'd probably, like, I'd, I'd probably cry if somebody was shouting in my face. Not because I, I was upset. <laughs> I think that would be my natural reaction. So I've got, I've got a really annoying, like, response that when I get angry, I cry. And I'm not upset, I'm angry, but my body just cries. So it's, I, it's the most frustrating thing because I'm like, I am really angry, I'm not upset. And there's these tears like falling down my face and I'm like a mess. So yeah, I think I'd be one of the ones that would leave first. <laughs> but Bear grills, I'd do. I'd yeah, do the it'd island. Be great. It'd be, it, I reckon you'd go out for a bang though. It'd be great entertainment. <laughs> Little five foot one having a complete <laughs> meltdown. Yeah. shouting at Aunt Middleton <laughs> it'd be great it'd be great yeah but no maybe the island's better better for you they're casting as well at the moment I got an email from them about it but I just I'm not up for it yeah I did apply a couple of times and um yeah Alan Alan's always like you you just wouldn't last you wouldn't last they wouldn't let you on I was like why wouldn't they let me on and he was like well because of your past I was like well that's not fair <laughs> and he was like no they wouldn't let you on I was like one day Alan I'm gonna bugger off to an I island I reckon they would I reckon they would let you on I think your past makes it more interesting yeah maybe they want we'll interesting see. characters but me having ginger skin I'd probably burn and have to be taken off the island because of that <laughs> that would be hilarious watching that wouldn't it you know, on the first day, looking at the, the token ginger girl, like, oh, shit, she's going to fry up on this island. 
Yeah, like <laughs> half an hour later, just like this red-faced lobster walks on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's TV gold though, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It would be a really good outtake, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's me me done with the right. questions really it's been really interesting talking to you and it's been really nice to get a guy's perspective on addiction and mental health and everything because like as I said I just don't think enough people talk about it so having somebody like yeah. you that is willing to put themselves out there and and be authentic about it as well um is yeah. a breath of fresh air great Great. It's been great talking to you. So let's do it again. I think the book's coming out in July. So let's try and pencil something in before July or something. If you fancy it. Yeah, definitely. That'd be great. Um, so where can people find you on social media, etc.? You can find me on, on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And it's all at Mr. Maisie. M-I-S-T-E-R-M-A-I-S-E-Y. Michael okay. Maisie. Find me there. Fab. And, and yeah. if you're struggling, reach out and talk to me. I, you know, I'm pretty active on my DMs. So yeah, if you're struggling, don't suffer in silence. Reach out and talk. Definitely do. Definitely go because his Instagram has got a good lot of gold on there. So yeah, great. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much. Nice one. Good All talking right. to you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. If you love being part of the tribe, make sure you subscribe to our podcast and leave a comment or leave a five-star review and we will be back for you next week for more Tribe Talk.